Let's go through every single package installed on a Linux install DVD, specifically Slackware 14.2. Um, of course, these are all open source packages that I'm talking about on this show, so they probably can still apply to you, even if you're not running Slackware and even if you're not running Linux. These are open source packages, so you can download the source code and run them on any computer, whether you're running Linux, Mac, Windows, BSD, doesn't matter. You can learn probably something from this episode. So let's get started. I have covered Perl. I've covered package config. I've covered pmake. The next one in line is Python-2.7.11, and that's more or less what we're going to talk about today. I say more or less because a couple of reasons. N number one, Python 2.7 is end of life. That that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, it exists, but it isn't being. It's not supported anymore. So it would be silly to literally talk about Python 2.7 unless it was some kind of retrospective maybe about, I don't know, what Python 2 brought to the language or something, but I don't know enough about Python to, to do something admittedly historically interesting like that. So instead, I'm going to sort of talk about Python 3, and yet, I'm not really going to do that either. Um, I, I want to talk more about Python and programming and, and, and what Python meant for programming. And this is certainly from my own experience, so it'll be somewhat, I guess, uh, influenced by just kind of how I discovered Python and what it meant for me. But I do feel like there might be some common thread here among a lot of people because I, I don't believe that my experience was entirely unique. Um, I, I feel like I was very largely influenced toward Python because there was a, a pitch, a marketing pitch, as it were, not, not literally marketing, but a, a sales pitch, again, not literally sales, toward get, adopting Python as, as your first language. And I, I, I don't think that was directed, you know, exclusively at me. I think that's a common thing that Python used to at least position itself as. So I want to talk about that a little bit, and I want to talk about generally how programming languages are learned. So first of all, let's talk about Python a little bit. I don't know its history. I should look it up maybe sometime. Maybe someday I will. I don't know. It's an old language. It was based on some older language. We're not based, but it was it was influenced by other languages. And one of the things that it was aiming to do, as far as I can tell from sort of what I've read about it, one of the things that it was aiming to do initially was to be a a simple programming language, like a quote-unquote simple programming language, something that would be simple to learn and simple to retain. And that was a, a goal that it had. Like, it, it, it specifically wanted that to be a characteristic of, of the language. What, it, it, it tackled that in a couple of different ways, and... Certainly one of the infamous ways that it has tackled sort of its structure, its own structure, is to insist that the scope of a statement in Python is controlled by how far indented each line is in the file. So if we create a really simple hello world plus application, you might open it with while true colon next line indent print parentheses quote hello world, close quote, close parentheses, next line, no indent, print, parentheses, quote, you'll never see this line, close quote, close parentheses, then what, what will happen in that script is that as long as true, the word, the, 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 the keyword true is true, which is always true, would never be untrue, otherwise it would be false. So while true resolves to forever, colon, and then the thing indented under it will happen for as long as that is, is that is true. And so it's an infinite loop, essentially, of while, while true, print hello world. So were you to run that, you would just see hello world printed to your terminal nonstop forever. And you'd never see that final line that says you will never see this line, because you won't, because true is always true, and there's no way to sort of break out of that loop, and that loop is defined by that indent. The while statement is not indented, and then anything indented underneath it occurs as part of that loop. Anything not indented is out of that scope, it's no longer a part of that loop, and it happens. Now, if you were to move 
that final print line above the while true, that would be a different story. Then you'd see a, a, a line that says you'll never see this line, which is now not true. And then you would, and then we would enter the loop of while true is true, and then you would see a bunch of hello worlds printed forever. So that's the scoping of, of Python, and it is entirely defined by the indentation of, a, of each line. If it's all the way over to the left, it is a new scope. It is a new statement. It, it starts from the top of the flow chart. If it is indented, then something above it controls whether it will happen or not. I don't know why that was a choice that they made. It is a choice that they made, though, and it is something that persists even today. It, it surprises me, honestly, that it does persist today. I thought I thought that with Python 3, they would at least give you the option to maybe use braces, sort of an optional method of, of scoping or something, but they don't. Now, someone on Mastodon told me the other day and this was interesting to see, but this is a little bit of listener feedback before the coffee break, which uh, that's that's kind of exciting. That's something new and different. Um, is that is, what they said was that Python used to be sort of known for having only one way of, of doing things. That was one of the pitches of, of Python, was that there wasn't more than one way. It's Rabbit Isle is the uh, user who who spoke to me about this. Said, um, just listened to your latest podcast episode about Perl. Wanted to mention that from my memory. One of the selling points of Python was the, quote, clean syntax, unquote, and the dismissal of T-M-T-O-W-T-D-I, which is there's more than one way to do it, philosophy of Perl. Some people were finding Perl's syntax quite confusing. I would like also to thank you for your podcast. Oh, well, that's very nice. Okay, so um, so the the point is that Python, apparently, and this is to Rabbit Isle's memory, and but frankly, I mean, to mine as well, a little bit, was that ostensibly in Python, it was very sort of rigid. There, there was, there was not more than one way to do it. There was one way to do it. That, that when you wanted to do something and you searched, how do I do this thing in Python? You would get one answer. And you can kind of see the, um, the appeal of that, to, to be honest. I mean, really, you can absolutely see the appeal of that because the fewer options you have, then the fewer variables that come into play. There are probably some very good, complex examples that I could invent if I really, really tried, but I don't even think that's necessary. I think simpler is actually better, so I'm going to use something very basic and probably not essential, but Let's say that you'd been writing a Python script or application, whatever, and you've been using uh, the convention um, if um, i is greater than, so greater than symbol, or, or equal equal to j, then do whatever. And you've been using that convention throughout. So you've got these mathematical operators, greater than symbols or equal signs or whatever, and and that's what you've been using. So your code is looking very consistent right now. And and there's no question, really, of when we're going to compare things, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to use the greater than or the less than or the equal symbol. And if you were, say, finding all instances of comparisons in your script, you could, you could reasonably do a Control-F or Control-S or Control-whatever-it-is to search for something in your file. You could look for those symbols and reasonably expect that you would find every instance of a comparison. Well, then someone else comes along and adds to your code, and in Python writes the perfectly valid statement, if i is true, then, or if i is 99, then, whatever. So there's a comparison happening, but instead of using the equal-equal convention, or the greater than or the less than, they use the English term is, is. And now all of a sudden you have a comparison happening, but you've got it done in a different way. And so now your Control-F or Control-S or whatever you use to find stuff in a text file, it doesn't find that instance because, that, as far as it knows, you know, it's using a different syntax, so it doesn't look the same. Now that's a really minor uh, example, and, and there are more complex examples that we could drum up if we wanted to about different ways of achieving things and how having different ways of achieving things can gum up the works elsewhere. So for instance, let's say there's a really cool um, technique to, I don't know, produce a widget in Python. 
and that's what you need to do. You know, somewhere in your in your code, you have to produce this widget, and you don't know how to produce a widget. You've never done that before, but you want to make a widget in Python. So you you have everything set up. Everything else about your application is working. All you need to do is actually a good example would be embed a widget. You want to embed some kind of thing into your into your application, maybe a, a video screen into your into your window or something like that you think that's what you want to do and so you do your research try to figure out well this this one component that's the one thing i still don't know how to do you find some examples online and there's five different examples so you have to figure out which one you want to trust today to try to actually achieve the thing and maybe you try one and it turns out that's not going to actually work because it requires a whole class structure that you hadn't anticipated and the, that that wouldn't work for you and this other one uses a framework that won't work for you and this other one you know and so you've got all of these different ways of doing a thing and and your application hasn't been geared toward that because you didn't know you were going to have to embed this widget or produce the widget or whatever you're doing with the widget you didn't know that at the t at the time and so now you've got you've got this you got all this work invested, and you got five different ways of doing a thing, and none of them were working for you. Or you've got one way, and none of them working for you. Who knows, right? So the point is, the more more choice you have, the more variables you have to consider when when trying to make a thing work. Now, as both of my examples, I think, demonstrate, I don't know that having fewer choices actually benefits as much as maybe people thought it would benefit. I, I will definitely say that consistency in syntax is really nice. So for instance, as much as I dislike the scoping by indentation methodology for the same in Python as in YAML, um, as much as I don't like it, I will concede that at least that brings consistency to Python code. If you were uh, if you were scripting the parsing of Python code, you never have to consider a case where the scope of variables or functions or whatever is not decided by indentation. You might have to figure out whether they're using spaces or tabs. That's a different story. That's a different problem. Point is, you never ever have to say in your script or your parsing or whatever, you never have to look for both a curly brace and an indent, or, or rather a curly brace or an indent. That will never happen because a curly brace will never be the scope delimiter for Python. So there is there that that's quite nice. And and you know the consistency between having mathematical operators versus English words as your comparisons that brings consistency. You you if you if only one was allowed, then you would never have to consider an event where a comparison in your code was using English language rather than a specific preset group math symbols. Now, I could be wrong. I'm not a developer of Python. I, I didn't invent Python, believe it or not, and I, I don't work on Python. I don't, you know, I work with Python, but I don't work on Python. Um, I think the intent was that the fewer choices you have in syntax specifically, then the, the, the less you have either to teach or to learn depending on which side of the table you're on. And, and so it's easier, it's an easier language to comprehend overall. I don't know that that idea scales to other things, though. So, yes, I see why limiting the syntax would be useful. I am puzzled that Python doesn't limit the syntax more, and I am puzzled that anyone would assert that there are fewer choices of how you can do a thing in Python when, as I say, with complex problems, there are multiple ways to code a solution. And one way may fit your code and it may not, you know, and either way, you're still, you, you still have to learn the principles behind those solutions. Very rarely are there cases where you can literally look for a solution in someone else's code and then copy and paste that solution straight into your, into your, into your program. I mean, there are times you can do that. I mean, there, there are functions and libraries or modules, as Python calls them, that are essentially copying and pasting code. But in terms of sort of the the concepts, the conceptual nature of the language, fewer choices I don't think helps narrow down what you have to like learn conceptually. It just means that there are, you know, in theory, fewer ways of, of expressing that through the syntax of the language. And yet, I don't see that Python actually limits the way that you can express things in its language. That was a lot of 
um, talking, like 15 minutes of talking about sort of the way that Python betrays its own self-stated... Well, is it its own self-stated? I, I can't... I don't have citations to say that it's self-stated, but it certainly betrays its reputation. And as I've said before, sometimes you earn a reputation that that differs from what you think your own reputation ought to be, and you kind of get stuck with it, uh, fair or unfair. And so I am here to say that Python's reputation, I think, has... that Python has outgrown its reputation. That's what I think. So even though Python is famous for limiting choices and it's famous for being easy to learn, and for being uh, really, really simple, and yet really, really powerful. I believe Python really is is Python. And I think the most, um, shall we say, Pythonic thing about Python is the way that it chooses to rely on modules. I'm going a little bit out on a limb here because I'm making a lot of generalizations and that's never going to be true as often as as it ought to be. But I'm going to just say generally speaking, Python has this ha- has a tendency to really really lean on the rich ecosystem of modules or or libraries that people have written for it. And the goal seems to be for modules to make working with all the different kinds of data out there in the universe as easy as working with the stuff that you work with during the tutorials of Python. And there's a certain kind of brilliance to that. So for instance, let's say you had you, you went to a how to start coding with Python site. And you go to the site and you look at it and it teaches you about all the boring stuff that everyone has to learn up front. Like, this is a string. This is an integer. Here's how you can get the third character of a string in Python. Here's how you can list a bunch of strings together and form a list. And here's how you can access a an item of your list. Here's how you can iterate over your list. And so on. You've got all of these... Which, by the way, by the way, if you go to a, your search your search engine of choice right now and search for how iterate over list Python. And you go to, uh, let's just go to Stack Overflow, iterating through a list in Python, 10 years ago, four months ago, so this is a pretty old question. I want to iterate over through, through a list of lists. Oh, well, that's actually a different question. That's fine. You have so many answers to this question, so many different ways to do the thing that someone is asking them to do. So just to, um, there's actually not as many as I thought. I must be thinking of a different Stack Overflow post. Well, I definitely am, because it wasn't a list of lists. I want to iterate over a list. Anyway, point is, the myth of only being able to do something one way in Python is truly, truly debunked. I mean, it's just, it is not correct. It is not true. I don't know that it was ever true. I don't know that it was not ever true. I just am saying, if you want to do something in Python, there are many ways for you to discover how to do the thing. Anyway, that was a tangent. I apologize. Back to the basic tutorials of Python, right? You're, you're learning Python, you're sitting down to learn it, and you're you're learning all the basics, all, all the things that you just, just, stuff that you look at and you're like, I'm never going to do this. Why am I ever going to want the fifth letter of a string that I'm printing to greet my user. Like, all I want to say is, hello, username. Like, that's all I want to know is, how do I do that? And instead, you're learning how to make lists, and and then you have to make dictionaries, which are a fancy Python word for arrays, and then you have to uh, learn how to um, index things, and, and, and so on, right? And you're making variables, and and then you're making loops, and you're doing all these basic things. And yes, you're doing cool things in your terminal, and it's kind of fun for an afternoon, but after a while you just think, why Why did I have to learn that? Well, the reason that you had to learn that is because now that you want to write a video game in Pi Arcade, or now that you want to um, access a web dev server over, over in, in a Python script, or now that you want to um, parse not parse, um, maintain, uh, read and write from an SQLite database in Python, the, the modules that you're going to download to enable those very advanced things, making a video game, talking to SQLite, 
whatever else. There are modules out there on pypy.org. There are modules out there, and they make it very easy for you to do these advanced processes and the the general syntax and sort of approach to looking at that data is the same approach that you learned during your tutorial. And that's really, really essential and an important aspect of Python that I believe is one of its, is, is probably its greatest strength. Forget about the indentation and how beautiful, quote unquote, beautiful Python code looks. Forget about the fact that it uses a very flowing and sort of English sounding, English sentence sounding syntax because it has words like is and not and true, which to me doesn't make that very English sentencey um, because you can throw in operators in there anyway, as we've just demonstrated. So forget all about you know the, the things that you hear about Python and and the actual strength of it is that when you learn the basics of programming with Python, those same principles, the same style of querying data, the same sort of expectations, those apply to the modules that you use later on. Now, there is deviation, like there there you know, you can get into more advanced stuff, but a lot of that a lot of the advanced stuff very often is hidden behind a very sort of again the word pythonic comes to mind because people people say that right in their critique of, of code they say that's not very pythonic but but the reverse of that is something that is pythonic and a thing that is pythonic to me at least is a thing that stays true to those first lessons that you learned when you were just figuring out python and that is such an important uh, sort of lesson i think for anyone to learn like any designer of anything to learn, is that if you can make your introduction to the thing that you have created applicable, equally applicable, to people who are just getting started as it is to people who have been doing the thing for five years, then that's huge. It's a great thing. I mean, imagine a video game for a moment where, you know, you start your video game and a lot of times, like, there's a little tutorial at the beginning, unless you skip it, but let's say that there is a tutorial at the beginning. And sometimes those tutorials really knock you over the head like it says straight up this is the tutorial section i am going to now step you through all of the basics and so you pick up an item and the little pop-up box comes up and says you've discovered an item you may add it to your inventory by clicking this button or pressing this button or whatever that's a tutorial and that tutorial the stuff that you learn there carries throughout you you don't really have to learn anything else after that tutorial you have now learned the interface of the game you've learned you've learned the language of the rest of the game for for now until you beat it that's what you're going to be dealing with that's the language you'll be talking imagine a video game that that doesn't do that that teaches you a tutorial and then decides to mix it up a little bit later on as you as you progress through the game like how crazy that would that be like you would you would want to add something to your inventory and discover that clicking the the or pressing the i button or, or clicking the inventory button or, or the 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 uh, triangle button on your controller or something no longer adds i don't know why the triangle would be your inventory that would be a silly choice but anyway the button that you used to click for an inventory suddenly uh fires your 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 weapon instead and and now your inventory is accessed by the up button on your d-pad instead of the y button on your controller is the y button the top one on the playstation controller i don't remember point is those initial tutorials that that initial that in, the initial establishment of this is the language this is the cadence this is the the logic that your brain needs to use it should be persistent it should be it should last throughout and that's i find in python that typically is the way the modules seem to be designed now i am sure that there are deviations i do feel like the more pythonic a module is the more likely it is to sort of rise to the top like it, it seems like the python community is pretty sort of self-governing or self-regulating um in its response to i guess non-pythonic modules modules that satisfy the requirements but does it in a weird sort of way that just most python programmers would not intuit would be the way that they would interact with that data and that's good that's that that makes a very sort of cohesive ecosystem now the alternative would be something like um you know anything like lua maybe i i i i 
I want to say like Ruby or something, but I have no knowledge of Ruby essentially, which is too bad because Ruby's right up next in our pr pretty close in our list of of topics for this uh, for the development package on Slackware. But Lua, for instance, has what I would say, as I've said before in previous episodes, a very consistent syntax. But in terms of its library set, you can get you'll get stuff just that that just assumes that you're that that you really know C, that, that what you're really doing is programming in C, but you just happen to be using Lua. But here, let's just think like C programmers for a while instead. And then there are other libraries that are very, I guess, very sort of consistent with Lua, like very cohesive with Lua. Like, here's, here's a library, and you're going to query this uh, table w uh, through the, the pairs or the I pairs, and that's the pairs keyword or the i pairs keyword and and that's just kind of what you would expect while other things just barely make the effort and sort of like well it's a library what do you want from me i've ingested data and here's that data as a as a data stream so have fun parsing it or something like that i don't know but you know i mean like it works and yes it's it's cool because the library's done much of the work for for some task but the interface it leaves you with might not be very, uh, very, very Luific, Luaific. It's not, you know, it doesn't feel like the rest of Lua. It feels like you're sort of dipping out into C all of a sudden, or, or something like that. So, and again, there are deviations, and there are ones that are quite very, you know, feel very much like a Lua process. But there are those that just don't. They, they don't feel like they got the memo of what Lua was, I guess, trying to do. So there, there's a difference. And I think that's the, that I think more than anything else about Python, that's the thing that sets it apart is this kind of cohesive logic and interface towards, to, to the data that you are processing in Python. Whether that data is just a bunch of simple strings and integers or whether it's complex data structures like HTML that you scraped from the web with beautiful soup, or a block of YAML, or JSON, or an SQLite database, or whatever it might be. There's that consistent sort of, this is how the data is going to be stored for you, and this is how you're going to query it, and it's all going to feel very familiar, because we're just doing everything generally the same way. That makes it easy to learn, it makes it pretty easy to teach, and it makes it easy to grow along with the language. Let's go get some coffee, and then we're going to talk about learning programming, learning Python. gotten coffee. I've actually been sipping on a uh, cappuccino. Well, technically it's a flat white. I've talked about flat whites before, but it's a, so it's a flat white from a local cafe called The Prospector, and it is really, really good. There's just something about an occasional flat white with that taste of uh, the steamed milk. You know, that's such a distinctive flavor in coffee, and you don't really... I forget about it sometimes. I, I kind of forget that that becomes such a prominent flavor in, in a in a fancy, you know, cafe coffee, um, and and it's nice. It's refreshing some days. Today's a, a warm spring day, and there's nothing like a nice hot cup of coffee to go along with that. I'm sure you agree. So when I started Python way back in 2008 or something like that, whenever I got up the, the courage to really dive into... Um, actually, it might have been 2009. Yeah, uh, I think it was 2009 because I was in... I was yeah I can I can kind of picture the 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 restaurant the diner that I was learning python in I think initially and so I can kind of place that I know where that was so yeah 2009 I think um so when I started python it was definitely being pitched as the language to learn it was the one that was easy to learn and it was being promoted by a lot of technologists at the time as just kind of the thing that you should get started with. And I feel like 
shortly thereafter, you started to hear about how Python was not just good for learning programming, but it was actually really good for a job. Like it was a career path. Like you could learn Python today, knowing nothing about computers or programming, and then end up in a paid position somewhere writing Python code. Like that was a reasonable expectation. Very similar to really one of the things that I'd heard about Linux, which was you could learn how to set up a web server in your uh, in your living room and end up as a paid sysadmin later on setting up web servers. That's a really powerful sales pitch, by the way. Uh, in fact, I, I'm going to – I it is my belief that Kubernetes, the big cloud container managing platform that's sort of driving the modern cloud computer um, – I believe that one of its biggest weaknesses right now is that it doesn't have the equivalent sort of intro-level platform that things like Linux and, and Python have. Now, sure, there's Minikube or Minishift or OKD, whatever. There are those, so yes, technically, you've got sort of a platform that you can play around on, but that's not the same thing as Linux, where you literally can be running the same software in your living room as the software that you're going to be running in the big uh, enterprise establishment that you have your 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 career in you know next month um, it's not the same as Python you can be running the same software the same libraries the same everything at at home as you are when you're at work so I think that's a, there's a really really big powerful strength there. And, and by the way, if you're interested in Kubernetes and getting started with it, you should check out my Hacker Public Radio episode on Kubernetes in 30 seconds or, or 30 minutes or whatever. Yeah, 30, 30 minutes. Uh, Kubernetes in 30 minutes teaches you how to create an actual real cluster on uh, three Raspberry Pis using K3S. Check that out. Anyway, Python, very powerful selling point there of, of being able to learn this thing and then take it into the real world as like the tool that you are using. And this is not, you know, I guess at one point it was kind of theoretical for me. I mean, I didn't didn't know that that was true, but it didn't take long to start looking around and seeing, like especially if you get a job around IT, you start to see the Python pretty 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 vividly. And certainly if you're running Linux, if you look, you don't even have to look that hard for for examples of Python being used in real world situations and you realize, oh this is like for real real. Like this is when they say that Python can be used for real stuff, like there it is, right, right there. It is it's the the, the application that I'm using to install Linux is written in Python. Okay, well I guess that that means something because a lot of people are doing this, so it must be robust enough to to withstand you know some some number of users. So that's kind of cool, and 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 you start to see it all over the place, you know, and and that really does sort of that starts to persuade you a little bit towards the the actual power of Python. Now I do I will say to be fair that I do feel that some of the power of Python can sometimes be overstated in. In the excitement over Python, sometimes people omit the the instances of C libraries that are being called by Python or something like that, and it's just kind of it's kind of conveniently left out of the out of the feature set. And I think that's not helpful to anyone. That sort of like, oh, this is entirely done with Python, except those low lying libraries there, but you don't need to pay attention to those anyway. Python, you can learn that and build a great career. Well, yeah, you can. But why not also say that sometimes for for certain kinds of data processing and, and for speed purposes or, or just sheer just needing to parse a certain kind of data, it's just more efficient to do it with this instead of that. I, I don't know. I feel like so, th th there was kind of – you know, there's – there's a certain way that sometimes Python can be pre presented where it seems like Python is the only language that anyone ever needs for any task. And that just rarely seems to be what you actually see in the real world. So I want to just kind of make note of that just so that just so that it's that has been said and it has now been said. And I'm sure someone will disagree with me on this or, or, or claim that Python never claimed it anyway or something like that. And I'm not saying that any official statement from Python said that all other languages should go away. I'm simply saying that the reputation, the sales pitch that I used to get f about Python from people 
was that Python could do anything just as fast as anything else. But in my experience, I have noticed that, you know, at places I've worked, that there are, there, there's, there's a bunch of front-end stuff done with Python, and then sometimes, in certain cases, there's a lot of back-end stuff that's done just in plain C. And I just want to acknowledge that, just say it, so that people know that sometimes... That's what you'll encounter. But Python, because of its reputation for being easy to learn, I, I think its well-earned reputation for being easy to learn, I want to look at what it does mean to learn a language. Because that in itself, I feel, can be a little bit confusing if you're not already writing in code. And so you might wonder, well, how do I go about learning a language? I mean, you, you obviously can go to a website that says learn python and and learn python like that's that's a, a way of learning the language but taking a step back from like the super literal um what is it to learn a programming language well in my estimation i have broken it down into five sort of groups not not steps really these aren't linear steps but these are groups of things that you kind of have to learn to understand about a language in order to feel like you now know the language. And I've, I've noticed these five groups because I have played around with lots of different languages at this point, and the, the more often I do that, the better at it I get. And I, I was talking, I think, in the Pearl episode about how I'd tried Groovy and how easy Groovy was, and, and frankly, even how easy Pearl was to sort of pick up in a week. I mean, I understand that I don't have a complete understanding of either Groovy or Pearl, having used each of them for like a week or two or whatever. Well, three weeks for Pearl now. But what I'm saying is that you can get up and running with a language relatively quickly once you sort of get the cadence down, kind of the rhythm of what you need to look for and and what to expect. These are those things. So first of all, I've identified syntax. Syntax in in terms of a language describes the structure of that language. It talks about how or it describes how the code that you're writing is written on a line by line basis as well as what's in each line, like the words that you use to create statements. Python as I've already said is known for using indentation to indicate where one sort of code block starts and where that ends. So I've already given the example of while true colon print hello world, because print hello world is indented right underneath the while true, it's kind of trapped within that loop. There's there's inheritance there. Printing hello world is only going to happen while true is true. Now again, true is always true by its nature, so that will happen forever and always, but we could do something else. We could make something else randomly. Uh, we could say while while um, let's see Emacs um, test.py. Do I have? No, I don't. Okay, good. We could do like a um, var equals two, and then we could say while var equals equals three colon print hello world. And if that's my script and I run python.test.py, nothing happens. If I open that script again and set var to 3 instead of var to 2, and then run the script, I get hello world, and I have to hit control C to get out of that endless loop. And that's that's a syntax thing. The, the while, uh, while var equals equals 2, that's or 3 or whatever it was, that, that's, that's part of the syntax. You would express the same thing differently in Java. So in Java, it would be while parentheses of var equals equals 2. Close parentheses, bra uh, curly brace, system.out.println, print, print, line, print, ln, print, ln, parentheses, uh, yeah, parentheses equals hello world, close parentheses, close no, close quote, close parentheses, semicolon, close curly brace. Different syntax, exactly the same process. Well, and even, sorry, even so var equals 2 at the top of the script. In Java, that would have been int var equals 2, semicolon. That's syntax. So just, just sort of the way that you speak, the way that you make statements in a language, that's the syntax. And understanding what syntax something uses is part of 
the process of learning that language. I wouldn't necessarily say that the syntax is something that you always need to learn entirely all up front. I have, I have found that a lot of times you'll get sort of the feel for the syntax as you go. And certainly, I think very, very broadly, there are ways of looking at syntax and sort of grouping things that use similar syntax together. So a lot of people will say, oh, this, this uh, Lua language here, that's kind of cool, it uses a C-like syntax. And that doesn't always make sense, because looking at Lua and looking at C code is like looking at completely different things. And yet, the way that it uses parentheses in its, uh, in its test statements, and the, the way that it... Um, that's the only example I can think of right now. Um, you know, you, you sort of get the feeling of, okay, well, that does actually feel a little bit C-like. That, I can see that, I can see the relationship there, while... Python tends to not do that, for instance. So you can start kind of grouping things together and sort of mar making generalizations. Like, okay, this is C-like syntax, got it. And then you can make almost predictions as you go. So maybe you haven't written a while loop before in this language, but you know what? Everything else so far has seemed a lot like what you learned from your Java classes or your C classes or your C++ classes. So let's just assume this is how the while loop goes. And oh, nine times out of ten or seven times out of ten, uh, you're correct. So that's syntax. That's, that's the first thing. Second thing for me is built-ins and conditionals. Um, those are the, 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 the vocabulary really, that you have at your disposal. So while the syntax talks about how you're building the sentence, the, the built-ins and, and conditional symbols, that's like the that's like what alphabet you're using or, or what your vocabulary is, I guess probably is more accurate. But um, programming languages, you know, just like la natural languages, they have a finite number of words that are recognized as valid. Now, natural language is weird, and we have lots of vocabulary in our natural language, and we're adding new words all the time and new phrases, and, and words change meaning and so on. Programming languages tend to be less fluid. They tend to be a little bit more set in stone. Like once they're, once these things are are established, that's what the language is stuck with for the rest of its life, practically. Um, the vocabulary can, in a way, be expanded in a programming language through new libraries. You get new sort of concepts when you import a new library that now gives you new tricks that you can use that. The normal language wouldn't know how to do that, but there are those built-in terms that you need to know and be familiar with. And it's interesting because, like the C programming language, you might think, "Wow, C is so 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 complex and so so low level, and, and how could I ever learn C?" Well, there's actually only 32 words in the vocabulary of, of of C. You know, you have words like for and do, while, int, float, car, break, things like that. 32 words really is all. You know, you, you learn those 32 words, and you have the vocabulary of C pretty much memorized. Now, like I said, there are going to be libraries and things that you can you can use outside of the core language, but essentially that's what you're that's what you're dealing with. And if you know you know sort of the basics of math, you know most of the basics of how to express mathematical concepts in C. I mean, there there are some idiomatic things that that are you know unique to C or unique to Java, unique to to Python, whatever, but you're still using the, you know, mostly the the symbols, the math symbols that are on your keyboard conveniently. Now, one of my biggest um, problems, I guess, with modern programming in general is the if-else inconsistency. And I, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. I cannot believe that we, as a human race in 2021, have not yet decided that all variations of if-else are equally recognizable across all languages. Like, I just don't know why every language developed from now on would not universally recognize all variations of the whole if-else-if, l-if-else space, if, and all the other variations. I just don't know why we wouldn't be able to just figure out a way to make that be equally valid. I can't believe that I have to remember a different way of expressing else if as opposed to Java, Lua, Python, Bash, Groovy, Perl. Like, I just can't believe that I have to keep track of which one uses which. Python uses if, elif, E-L-I-F, 
and then else. Bash uses if, elif, and else as well, but it closes its the, the scope of that loop, of that control statement, with a an if spelt backwards, so f, fi. C uses if, else, space, if, and else, uh, so does Java. Um, and then, what was it? In Perl, it was something like else if, or something like that, like all one string, sort of. So it's just a travesty, really. But anyway, that, it's, um, that was a tangent. Point is, you have to kind of memorize and learn or, or get a feel for the the literal vocabulary you have available in a language. And that includes the, the, the key phrases, like the key words, as well as the mathematical operators. And the mathematical operators can be a little bit tricky as well, and it's one of those stupid things, too. Um, you know, generally speaking, they're all, they're all using the same little characters on the keyboard, but sometimes the order of them are a little bit peculiar, and they, they want you to put the equals before the greater than, or the greater than before the equals, or they don't want you to do a plus equals, they just want you to do a plus plus, or something stupid like that, or what, what's, what's the one that Lua does? Something like tilde equals for not equals or something oh it's horrible anyway so there there are variations but you know that's it's it's not the difference that is the problem i guess technically i mean it is but it's also it it's just the knowledge that you have to pay attention to them you have to learn those things for that language and i think part of the technique of learning them is learning to know when to stop and check on them so for instance if i'm writing something in in perl i might be writing an l and if else loop or control statement or whatever and and because i know that it's a problem area then i might hesitate before i do the if else if else and look up what exactly perl uses for their if else statements uh, it looks like, according to the internet, that today it uses if, else if, E-L-S-I-F, else if, and then elf, uh, else. So if, else if, and then else. And those are all um, beautifully scoped by curly braces, so it's super easy to sort of open and close. The test statements are enclosed in parentheses. I would say, I would call this a C-like or a Java-like syntax. It's really nice. This is definitely my preferred syntax. Oh, but wait, I'm not supposed to be distracted by syntax right now. I'm talking about built-ins and conditionals. Um, so yeah, those else, if, else, if, and else, now I know, and so now I can continue writing. So in other words, just kind of the, recogn the recognition of potential trip tripping points, I think that's the important thing to get down when, when tackling a new language. Just kind of recognizing, oh, this is specialized. These are specialized terms. I should pause here, go look up the terms to make sure that I have them right, and then continue from there. The next thing for me, the next big group, are data types. Data types, um, you know, they, they decode, your, your code is going to deal with data, and computers have to have to handle data in different ways for reasons that you and I, dear listener, will never fully understand, except unless you do, in which case that's cool, very cool. Um, but um, I, I'll never understand really the difference between a string and an integer. I mean, not not really. I mean, I do, but I also don't. Not really. So, all languages understand integers, and most of them understand uh, decimals and individual characters, and all of these things are encoded differently at a very low level. Some languages try to figure that out for you, like Python does, tend to try to sort of determine that for you and do what is the most obvious thing. So for instance, if you if you if you print the number 2 and the word hello, Python is not going to attempt or yeah, if you if you add the word 2 and the word the 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 number 2 and the word hello together. Python is probably not going to attempt. I don't think it will. Jeez, maybe I should check before I make that statement. Uh, let's fire up a Python 3 session here. And I'll do print, quote, 2 plus... Um, oh, wait, no. I have to do var equals, var equals, quote, hello. Okay? So now if I do type var, it tells me that's a class of string. So it's a string, apparently. Of course it is. So now I'll do a print... Uh, parentheses um, two plus var close parentheses and oh it tells me that it can't do that is what it does now that's interesting I did not know that that's what Python would do I thought there was a, an example in the past where you could get Python to 
treat a string as integers and actually give you the results of that string back as a number. Um, maybe there is still a way, I just don't know how to, I, off the top of my head, I don't remember how to do that. I just remember that being a, a sort of an issue with Python earlier earlier on. Or not an issue, but a, a, a quirk, I guess, a thing that you could do. And, and that would be an interesting demonstration of, hey, technically speaking, these these data types are different. And so if I do type parentheses to close parentheses, I get the class int, integer. It's an integer. So trying to add an integer and a string to Python, that just doesn't make any sense. While you could, for instance, or at least you used to be able to, add a string and a string. Yeah, so if you print var plus var, you get hello, hello. Or if you do var plus quote space quote plus var, you get hello space hello. But if you try to add an, an integer in there, then it then it fails and says you can't can't concatenate string 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 and then an integer. That's not possible. Well, what if I wanted the digit two there? Well, then I could wrap two in str parentheses two close parentheses, and then I get hello space hello two. That's data conversion. That's type conversion is what that's called. And in Python, that's how it's done. And in other languages, it is done differently. There might be some kind of special library for it. There might be a built-in function for it. Who knows? It depends on the language. But understanding that the that types of data are different, I find, is more important than maybe, for instance, Python claims. Um, I feel like modern Python might be paying more attention to that than earlier Python. I feel like when I first started learning about Python, and this could just purely be the books that I was reading, but... Early on in Python, I feel like there was a real effort, again, could just be the books, but there was a real effort in, in what I was learning to sort of not worry about data types. Like, that wasn't really important. Python would take care of it for you. Never worry about data types. And it took me um, a long time to get over that, to like really understand that d the type of data that you're passing to a function is really, really important. Like if that function receives a string where it, it expected an int, or it gets a list where it expected a string, or a, an array where it expected a whatever, a float, then then there are problems. It will not work. Th things don't operate the same on different kinds of data. And so you have to understand that. And being able to convert data from one type to another is really, really important as well. And so understanding that data types exist and then how to convert from one to the other. When one kind of data is returned from a certain function and, and knowing to look for that kind of data, all of that stuff is really important. And I, I mean, I think to this day, honestly, I would guess that probably 50% of my problems in programming are data type related. And that's just a, a um, that's a problem that I have. That's, that's, you know, sort of, that's something that I'm not paying enough attention to half the time. And it, it ends up messing me up. You know, I'll spend way too much time not understanding why something's working and then realize that this function over here has been returning, I don't know, an array. And I've been trying to treat it as um, a string or whatever. So, yeah, that's um, that's to this day a problem that I have. Do I blame Python? Not directly. Only the author of whatever book I read to learn Python. Fourth group for me is uh, operators and parsers. So the um, operators, or math, par par uh, math operators, those are pretty standardized, as I was saying, with the built-ins. I mean, they're pretty much the things on your keyboard that you have available to you. There will be differences here and there. Incrementing a variable, that's another one of those things where I just wish all programming language would just recognize all the different ways because it's stupid to try to remember whether you can do a var plus plus or a you have to do a var equals var plus one or something silly like that. So it's it's really annoying that you have to remember it, but eventually you do have to remember you, you got to remember it. But the the operators themselves tend to be the plus, the equal, the minus, the slash for division, the asterisk for uh, multiplication, and so on. There are probably differences or, or exceptions, um, but but generally speaking, those are pretty easy to learn. The the parsing of that though, I've said this before, maybe on this on this podcast, maybe not, but I I I've often mused before that so much of programming is parsing. Like that's really a big part of programming, and you don't think of it that often. I mean, 
a lot of times when you see code, if you don't know that much about code, you just think that it's sort of generating magic. It's just generating what it wants out of nothing. But actually what most code is doing is parsing data. Whether that data was entered by the user, or it's from a known state that has already existed, or it's um, it's from a library, a configuration file that's that's lo getting loaded into some kind of framework. Whatever that data is, it is being parsed by the programming language. That's that's a, a very common task that you are doing in programming, and I feel like a lot of times, like when you're learning Python, you know, all of those beginner l level exercises where you're printing hello world and then you're printing just hello and then you're just printing h and look at what happens if you print the h and then the the world and now you have h world and and you know you're just doing this these stupid exercises and you're you're just thinking why am i learning to cut up words and to concatenate words and add words together and like what's the point well the point is that later in life in your programming life you're going to be doing that but you're instead of doing it to the string hello world you're going to be doing it to some unknown string in some array that you've gotten back from some library that has parsed some data in a configuration file that the user created when they installed uh, their os or something like that you know it's, it's going to be it's going to be data and you have to look at it, and you have to know how to discover the right parts of the data that you want, and how to relate that data to something else, and so on. So that's it's super, super important. And you'll be shocked at how how important things like the split function ends up being. Why would you ever need split? Well, as it turns out, there's a lot of things that are delimited by um, a predictable character, and so split actually comes in very useful because you know, you need to be able to cut that data up and look at different parts of it. And you'll see this even in basic bash scripting. You know, I mean, if you've ever done anything that, that I don't know, needs to extract an IP address, you know, you you just want to get the IP address really easily from IPAS, um, whatever that stands for. Um, what does that stand for? IP, oh, address show. That's what that stands for. IP address show or if config in the old days. Um, you know, you just want that. Well, now you have to. You're, what do you? How do you get that? How do you get reliably the IP address without all the other stuff around it, and so on? So you'll 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 come across parsing all over the place. You know, and and things like awk and sed and Perl and bash and all those things. They're famous for that kind of thing for that kind of reason. It's because for sysadmins especially, parsing of of big just log files of just lots of data. Like, trying to zero in and focus on what's actually important. That's a huge part of it. And it's all about just parsing raw text. You'll be shocked at how often you need to parse stuff in a language. So getting that, getting comfortable with that in Python, as it turns out, is really important. And then my fifth grouping, uh, my logical sort of thing that you need to learn, functions. Now, functions don't always look like functions. Sometimes or they're not even called functions all the time. Sometimes they're subroutines or, well, functions. Yeah, functions or, or subroutines, I guess. I, I'm sure that I've seen other examples of, of functions without really calling them functions. Well, I guess, yeah, in like... In lit, well, no, even in Lisp you have the defund. So yeah, anyway, uh, functions are important for me, I think. Um, I uh, and I I say functions rather than classes because classes generally the way that I think of them, I I, I think classes were kind of blown apart for me by Lua, where Lua doesn't have classes. I don't think um, it uses tables, and you can emulate classes with tables, and it's really an interesting process. I love that so much about Lua, but um, it, it's this, you know, class essentially is a template, right? And it's the output of a class. That's when it, you don't really care about a class until you have an instance of that class. So for me, the, the thing that you really have to understand about programming beyond classes is, is functions. Because functions, they produce output. They, they contain local code. They 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 accept input and so on and i think they're the real driving force even within classes so functions are important and i feel like a lot of scripting is kind of frankly taught incorrectly and i and i say this about scripting both in bash and in python and probably lots of other languages just the 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 
the beginner concept of scripting is it's hard anyway, right? I mean, it's it's an advanced process. You want me to think ahead about what I want my computer to do and then to write it down in a in a file and and then run that file. And yes, you can do that when it's really easy, like print hello world, print goodbye world. That's a pretty easy script, and it would be arguably relatively simple, no, silly to um to to te- te- teach people you know that in order to do that you have to first write um def print stuff parentheses parentheses or i don't remember how to do functions in python def print stuff colon print hello close quote close parentheses print parentheses goodbye close quote close parentheses and then dindent and then run print stuff essentially is what that would be I think Python three dot slash test dot pi. Nope, I got something wrong. Just don't know how to do anything in Python anymore. Apparently, um, print stuff parentheses parentheses colon. There we go. And then at the end of the file, print stuff parentheses parentheses. Got it. Okay. And I guess I mean that's what I'm talking about syntax, right? I mean, like you get the feel for a, a language, but it's the specific little syntactical. Uh, specifics that you have to kind of sometimes think about, recall, look up if in doubt. So it would be silly to teach people, arguably silly, to teach people how to do a function when all you're trying to do really is tell them, hey, look, you can put code into a file and then run the file and it'll do each line one after the other. Like, that's pretty cool. But I do feel like after you've taught that one basic lesson, um, I think I think it could be worth do, g- progressing immediately to, um, to a lesson about functions. Because sooner or later, if people progress down that path you are setting them upon, they're going to run into functions. They're going to need functions. And it might not be for years. Like, I existed in Bash without functions for the longest time and was perfectly happy with that but you know in the end is there's there's a lot of benefit to understanding how that functions exist how they work why they work and so on so and that's it those are that's how you learn a programming language that's you look at the syntax of the language you look at the built-ins and conditional statements you look at data types operators and parsers and functions and next thing you know you get the feel for the language and by feel for the language i mean directly you you know how to write in the language and you know what you don't know how to write in the language so that you know to go look that up and the next thing you know you're writing stuff in that language pretty well are you doing it in the most sort of um, traditional way that that language would imagine for you to do not necessarily Um, as we've seen i mean dave morris sent in uh, a pearl application or you know a remix of my of my little pearl dice roller application and he had a couple of sort of pearl better better ways of doing something in pearl by by leveraging technology that pearl provided that i just didn't know existed and didn't know to look for but that's part of the learning process you know getting getting a working application or a working script whatever and then learning how you can optimize it and change it and improve it and so on i mean that's that's part of that's part of learning the language but it's easier to learn the language i think once you start using the language uh, as strange as that may seem but you, you start to learn those those details. And I think Python l- lends itself really well to that because um, once you have just the basic the basics of Python down, as I've said, all the new things that you do with Python are going to follow the same kind of template, more or less. There will be deviations, but a lot of those deviations are going to be the edge cases that haven't been aggressively adopted by the community. And so, in general, your Python experience is going to be pretty similar to everyone else's Python experience. And that's that's a great, great thing. That's a, that's a huge feature of Python. And I think it's to the credit of the Python community that they have been so adherent to doing things a specific way. And yes, I hear myself saying that Python does stuff in a specific way, even after I've spent a half an hour before the copy break complaining that Python didn't have a consistent way of doing things. But very broadly, I think we can say that Python does have a specific way of doing things. They encourage it and and um, and, and foster it 
in their in their external libraries and modules they support that sort of thing and the end user benefits in the end from that so python it's a really cool language you should try it out if you don't pro program at all i would highly recommend python as a potential first language i would also recommend things like lua maybe that's that's a good one but Certainly, or Bash, that's another good one. If you're using the Linux terminal already, dip into Bash. Um, but Python is a really cool language. There's a lot of support out there, obviously, for Python. There's a lot of great um, learning tools out there for Python. Not all are equal, so you know you do kind of want to be careful as to what you sort of dive into with. You want to make sure that you're getting a, I would, I would argue, a, a reputable first intro to Python is important. Um, but it is a very, very it's – it's a powerful language. It's a flexible language. There's a lot to love about Python. Don't get too much into the hype. I think that it can be overhyped sometimes. There can be very broad statements made, you know, that Python can do everything as fast as anything else can and probably even better. Python is cross-platform and can run on any platform. Well, yes, it can, but you might have to make serious adaptations to your code in order for it to run the same on Windows versus Linux versus Mac. And so little things like that. You know, there's there's a lot of hype. You just kind of dial that down, like focus that out, um, and and just concentrate on the, the, the solidity of the language, the consistency of the philosophy of the language. Give it a try. It's a great place to get started. Python is really neat. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open I realized that I was out of place in this village.